Good morning. morning. I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 11. It's Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. That's the text that we'll be in today, this Palm Sunday. It's good to worship with you, to raise palms up, to welcome the King into our hearts and into our lives with all the generations of this church. Let's pray as we get into God's Word and spend time together drawing near to the King. Lord Jesus, you give us your Word and you've caused us to be born again through the Spirit working through your Word in our hearts. We've we've never been the same. We never will be the same. And without you, we have no hope. You are our King. And so today, Lord, teach us what it means to be the crowd who welcomes you in and teach us what it means to follow the King of Kings with the character of King in the way of the King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, three times in the Gospel of Mark, before we get to chapter 11, which is where we're going to be in today, three times in chapters 8, in chapter 9, and chapter 10, Three times Jesus predicts his own death. And three times his disciples totally miss the point. It's not surprising we see this happening throughout all the Gospels. And it's something that we can relate to in our own lives. But it's worth noting that this is how Mark sets us up as we get to the triumphal entry of Jesus. Which is where we're spending our time today. In Mark 8, Jesus says to his disciples, that he is going to be delivered into the hands of his enemies. He's going to be killed. And on the third day, he will rise again. And what does Peter do? Peter rebukes Jesus. And this is the famous line when Jesus, and you would not want to be on the receiving end of this, Jesus rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You think by chapter 9 they will have learned. Jesus predicts that he'll be delivered into the hands of his enemies. That he'll be killed. That he'll be raised on the third day. And what did the disciples argue about? Scriptures say the disciples argued with one another about who was the greatest among them. Here was the king in their midst. They're getting ready to to move toward Jerusalem to welcome the king in. And they're wondering, who's the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest, Lord? By the time we get to chapter 10, we would have thought, okay, maybe they're getting the point now. But most of the time, we don't, and they didn't either. Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be mocked and spit on, he says in this one. He expands it. And on the third day, I will rise And their response is, grant us, Lord, one to sit at your right hand and one to sit at your left hand in glory. Three times Jesus tells them, three times they miss the point. And that brings us up to chapter 11, which is where we land today. And what we'll have to ask today, the question we'll want to solve is why does Jesus, Jesus who knows what he's heading into, why would he ever go to Jerusalem? Why wouldn't he just take a detour and try to get to glory by another route? He knows it's coming. He's just been pronouncing it to his disciples. Why would Jesus ride into all that awaits him in Jerusalem? And we're going to look at today's scripture in 
two sequences. We're going to look first at what it means for Jesus to be king and for us to follow in the way of the king. And then we're going to look at what it means for us to be the crowd and what that means for discipleship as well. So turn to Mark 11 verse 1. Let's fix our eyes there as we fix our eyes on King Jesus. Now it's interesting, when we get to the first seven verses of this 11-verse passage, what we find is, strangely, the focus is on how Jesus is going to procure his ride, his transportation, into Jerusalem. You think, well, surely you want to rush ahead and get to the triumphal entry and the cheering and the palms and all the stuff we just had here. But he spends seven of the 11 verses ruminating, unpacking, what really is the ancient version of an Uber ride for Jesus. He's a borrowed donkey. And you say, what does that tell us? Well, you know, the greatest storytellers, isn't it true, often they leave blanks where we would try and fill in all the details. They leave blanks for us to put together, and that's what makes learning and growing and reading so much fun. And, and so Mark doesn't so much as say it, but by putting this much emphasis on those first seven verses, Mark is really saying, this is important. Okay, so why is it important then? Why is it important? We have to ask that as contemporary believers. Well, there's two opinions in the scholarship on this. The first one is very practical. Some commentators think that Jesus is telling this story sort of to demonstrate how prepared he was. He set this whole thing up in advance. He knows a guy who knows a guy in Jerusalem who's got a donkey who's never been ridden on. It's just going to be tied to this place. And he gives him the code word and he says, the Lord needs it. And then when they get there, you know, Jesus will have it all planned out. It's sort of the consummate good planner motif. Jesus, so to speak, has all his organizational eggs in his messianic basket. And the plan, of course, goes off without a hitch. Now, this version of the interpretation of the text, this would be beloved by HR representatives across the globe. This is the gospel of efficiency. You know, Jesus efficiently, effectively schedules salvation. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, he'd make a teams meeting way months in advance. And did, did everyone get the link? Did everyone get? Yeah, we got the link, Jesus donkey's going to be there. Other interpretations, and, and this is kind of where I land on this, say if you're going to spend seven verses out of 11 talking about a donkey, there better be a, a better reason for it than, than that Jesus just had high executive function. And really what I think is going on here is that it's a demonstration of Jesus' divinity. It's a demonstration of God's providence God's arranging of the plans in advance, and therefore it's really a comment on Jesus' divine knowledge and divine intentionality. Jesus is intentional. Jesus is intent. He intentionally is going into Jerusalem, and that's a key point for us to think about. He's intentional. He's not aloof. He's going to Jerusalem purposely to carry out the salvation plan of God by dying and rising again. He's intentional, but he's also scriptural. And as we look at the king, this helps us understand what it means to be followers of the king. And again, we see this from Mark's subtle clues, but in Matthew's version, it's even clearer. In the Gospel of Matthew, he quotes Zechariah 9, 
verse 9, which in the second temple period of the Jews, Jews around the time of Jesus, was read as a reference to the Messiah. Let me just read that for you, Zechariah 9, 9, explaining why Jesus, as it were, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey rather than, say, a war horse. That's what it says in Zechariah. Your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey. Now, in the ancient world, a king could ride on a horse or a donkey, but the significance of a donkey was that the king rode a donkey in times of peace. And the king rode a horse, usually when in times of war and often with a chariot. And if we look, Matthew doesn't give us this, but if we look at the next verse in Zechariah 9 verse 10, he, he contrasts the donkey, which the Messiah will ride on, with the war horse. Listen to what he says. Hear the word of God. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. I will cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And I wonder, I wonder how often, unlike Jesus, we ride into whatever situations in life we're going into, not intentionally, not following the infallible cues of Holy Scripture, but with the flawed compendium of human emotion as our guide, our deep feelings within us. And sometimes we come even to this text and we ask these sorts of questions. We see, some of us, Jesus riding in on a, on a cute donkey. And depending on your disposition, maybe you're on this side, you're like, this is gentle, gentle guru hippie Christ on a miniature pony, very gentle, trotting, trotting into Palestine. Just totally passive, on his way, maybe to give a politically correct lecture about mindfulness. It's very peaceful, very gentle, right? And then we start, if we're inclined, and honestly, I'm more inclined in that direction than the other, just my disposition. If we're the type of person who's already non-confrontational, we say, isn't this nice? Jesus is just like me. That's a Jesus I can worship. He seems sort of familiar. And we grab on to that. But when we do that, we risk reading ourselves into Jesus don't we? And we do it all the time. The study of Jesus throughout history, when you look into the lake of Jesus' study, it's said that you see your own image, your own reflection. We do it all the time. There is a problem with that gentle, hippie guru Jesus who never confronts anybody. Why? If you continue to read on in Mark, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, looks around, goes to sleep apparently in Mark's gospel, Gets up the next morning, what does he do? Go to the temple and start, you know, just singing peaceful songs? He's overturning tables. He's making a whip of cords. Turtle doves are flying everywhere. It's mass chaos, right? He's intentional. He's scriptural. He's meek, but he's not a wimp. He's not afraid in the right way at the right time to follow the cues of scripture and carry out God's plan. And then we end up on the other side, though, sometimes with the Jesus who we don't like this Jesus on a pony riding into Jerusalem. We'd much rather that he's charging in on a chariot while listening to Metallica and he's strong and he's the man's man, Jesus. He's going to get things done. 
the way God should if he were me, right? Like Macho Man Randy Savage at WrestleMania in 1988, just making an appearance and getting things done. We, we don't want Jesus who rides in on my little pony. We want, we want Jesus who rides in on a chariot. Jesus, friends, does not endorse our preferences for our personality types. He calls introverts and extroverts, and he calls us not to make him like us, but to follow in the way that he leads, whatever the situation calls for. Jesus is intentional. Jesus is scriptural. And Jesus follows the will of God in the word of God and not the whims of human emotion. And he rides directly into the chaos in Jerusalem. He predicts it. Well, if the first seven verses are about the kingship of Jesus... The last couple are about the crowd, and that's perhaps even more pertinent to us in this story. Look at verses 8 through 10, Mark 11. The focus turns to this crowd who's, who's welcoming Jesus. We just sort of enacted that with the children here. It was really fun, right? The crowd welcomes Jesus with exuberance. And oftentimes when this is preached, there'll be a direct connection that people make straight from the exuberant welcome of Jesus over to the crowd that yells crucify at the end, as if it's the same crowd. It's not necessarily a bad thing to do that, but we got to understand that the crowd here at the beginning is a different crowd than the crowd at the end. We can kind of collapse them all in as a sort of literary theme, but just historically speaking, the, the Bible tells us here in verse 9 that the crowd here consists of, quote, those who went before and those who followed after Jesus that is down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. These are his disciples. These are not just random strangers. His disciples, the 12, and then loads of other people who have been tagging along and coming to meet Jesus. Those are the people who are welcoming him in. Luke's gospel makes this even clearer than Mark's. He says, Jesus drew near to Jerusalem with, quote, the whole multitude of his disciples. This crowd is a crowd of followers of Jesus. They know Jesus. They've heard him preach. They've heard him teach. They're enamored. They're following him into Jerusalem. In some sense, they love him and they're eager to cheer him on and receive him. If there is a connection between the different crowds, the really pertinent one is the connection between this crowd who cheers Jesus on and the crowd who not very long later abandons him in the garden. Because in those two crowds, who do you have? You have the 12. Jesus' closest followers. The ones who are cheering, probably loudest among all the crowd, who then abandon him alone to be condemned in the garden. And why, why is this important for us? Well, it helps us to shift our focus from the initially cheering crowd all the way over to the crucifying crowd and say, actually, the more problematic thing for us as contemporary Christians is the link between the cheering crowd and the fleeing crowd. I want to focus here for a minute. Follow with me. Like the 12, we tend to be Jesus' biggest fans when he meets our expectations, but when he starts to perplex us, when he starts to frustrate us, when he starts to call us beyond something that we customize in ourselves for him, it becomes a lot harder to follow him. When he really actually starts to become king over our lives and over our hearts, 
It's often the case that we tend to drop the branches, pick up the coats, and just sort of walk away. Maybe for a season, maybe for a really long time. And you're saying to yourself, I've never done that. I'm here at church. I'm here all the time. I'm not abandoning Jesus. I'm the cheering crowd, not the fleeing crowd. The truth is we're all both. Because in the contemporary church, the place where we flee and abandon Jesus from is not the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the square of popular public opinion and comfortability. That's where we flee from Jesus. We could be standing right next to him, and yet we've fled from his authority. This is a functional kind of fleeing. We're there, and we're willing to submit to him as Savior, but we just kind of want to dial back on some of the ways that he's asking to be Lord. We want to dial that back a little bit. And the truth is that the fleeing crowd, including when we're part of that crowd, we never arrive at a better Savior than we left. The best that we can hope for is... I don't know, like a domesticated suburban savior who would never have the time or the guts to ride directly into Jerusalem on a donkey to take on sin and suffering and death and conquer it. He wouldn't have the time for that. No, the best that he could do is to run religious errands for us while he rides us around suburban northern Virginia in a minivan. Right? Jesus intentionally and scripturally rides into Jerusalem. And he does so for the crowds that are cheering him on when he arrives, but soon are going to turn on him when he's inside the gates of Jerusalem. So why does he enter? You have to ask yourself this. Was he out of his mind? Why would he enter into that sort of a situation? Would you do that? If you had some sort of a device on your phone that could tell you danger, it would be going off the charts at that point. Would you still go? Why did Jesus go? Well, last weekend, I was back in my hometown in in Massachusetts just for a snap visit. And uh, my dad sadly passed away last year, earlier last year. And like many of you have had to do, I'm sure, before, uh, my siblings and I were spending some time preparing for the sale of the house. We're going through all the stuff in the house. It was really overwhelming. It's, It's emotional on the one hand, right? But then it's practical. you got to do it. you got to kind of, it's just something you have to do. And of course, you're finding all sorts of old things and, and there's smiles, but there's also tears and all that stuff. One item that I found in the attic, among many things in the attic, and I was like, how have these things been up here for 30 years from the 80s? Some of them are really cool. I have a lot of baseball cards that I think are worth a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know anything about baseball, though, as you'll, as you'll see. One item that I found in the attic was actually the game ball from Little League Baseball in 1993. Do you know what the game ball is? It's when you are the best player that particular game. The coach will say, oh, here's the game ball for this player or that player. Now, I had seven game balls. I threw the rest of them away. I know that sounds terrible. I can't take everything on the plane. This is because the rest of the other game balls were all given to me, and they said this on them, for team spirit. It's not nothing. I'm a passionate guy. What do you want? Team spirit. But one ball, this one from 1993 when I was 12 years old, when I played on the Tigers against the Orioles, 
my dad had written on it, first home run. More like first home run only hit ever in seven years of baseball. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. So you have to hold on to that one, right? It's got his handwriting on it. It's got the date on it. And I remember that my dad was there watching as this happened. When I hit the home run, it was a total fluke. I closed my eyes. If there's any baseball coaches out there, it's the thing you're never supposed to do. Well, guess what? You're wrong. <laughs> closed my eyes and just did one of these like golf swings. Connected with the ball. This thing went flying out of the park, down the street. Everyone was going crazy. And I just stood there. And you could hear over the speaker, John Frederick, home run. And I still just stood there until my coach came out and said, come on, you got to run. And I ran the wrong way all of a sudden. Right. And I remember my dad took me uh, to get dinner after we got a, a meatball sob. It was like this really great time. And he remembered it too, apparently, because when I was cleaning out my attic, I found that ball, which I kept. And I found this handwritten note that I don't even remember seeing ever before that he had written to me. And he says in this handwritten note, uh, I'll just quote, like, I, if I brought the actual note, I wouldn't be able to read it. It was in crazy cursive writing. This is what he said. I'll always remember that home run. I didn't even look to see how far the ball went. I just kept my eyes on you. I love seeing how happy you were. Now, if you knew my dad, he would never stay, say stuff like this. It was wild to find a note like this. It was beautiful. But why am I telling you this at the end of his sermon on Palm Sunday. Right? It's just to play the heartstrings. Is that what's going on here? Is that what I'm doing? You know, I, I tell this story because in a room this size with this many people, enough of you know exactly why I'm telling this story. You felt the sting of death that 1 Corinthians talks about. You felt when it goes deep inside your inmost being, and comes down to your heart, the grief that comes on and doesn't ask you, can I come back and bother you today? But it comes back just when you thought you had it all sorted. You know exactly what I'm talking And if you don't, sadly, you will. You don't need a PhD to understand it. You just need a heart. And friends, this is precisely why Jesus didn't take a detour around Jerusalem. He didn't come to deter sin. He didn't come to defer death. He came to destroy it. And that's exactly what he did. And that's what we're walking into this holy week. And that's why we celebrate, but we also come weeping sometimes. Jesus rode into Jerusalem to destroy death. For every loved one who succumbs to death's sting but falls asleep in the certain hope of the resurrection... Jesus rode into Jerusalem. For our brothers and sisters in Nashville who are just at an incredible loss this week in sadness and grief, we weep with them with all the tears of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus rides into Jerusalem for them. He rides in for the hurting. He rides in for the lost. He rides in for the abandoned. He doesn't redirect his route. He rides into Jerusalem for them. Unless we forget in the ebb and flow of the constancy and familiar nature of Easter. Easter comes. Easter goes. He rides into Jerusalem for you. 
For you, when you welcomed him as Lord and threw your coat down and cheered him on and said, you changed my life. I'll never be the same. I love you, Lord. He wrote in for you. For you, when you took up your coat and just left him in the garden, which we all do over and over again. For you, who fled from him, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Jesus rode into Jerusalem when you took up your coat and left, but even more when you were part of that other crowd. When you were standing at the foot of the cross, looking at him and shouting, crucify, crucify, we hate you. You're not God. We don't owe you anything. You're weak. You're weak. You're weak. You're nothing to me. Jesus rode into Jerusalem for you then in Romans. It says, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That is the gospel. And it's a gospel in which brokenness is not dealt with at a distance, but the Redeemer rides directly into the chaos and conquers it. God's king, God's kingdom, it doesn't come by negotiating a way around Jerusalem it comes by taking the path of glory that first stops at Golgotha before it gets back to glory. And it's a path that Jesus took for us, for you, for the sins of the world to call us to life in him. And I have this image as we close. Whatever season you're at, maybe you've just put down your coat and you're so excited about Jesus, you're welcoming him in. Or maybe for a while you've been kind of abandoning him. And wondering, is it time to, to take up my coat and come back? Or maybe you've been walking with him for a long time. And maybe what the Lord is calling us to do if we're there, wherever we are, is to take up the coat that we first cast down. Take up the coat that for a while we cast away. And come alongside someone who's at the foot of the cross, mocking the Savior, and put it on their shoulders. And say, behold the man upon a cross. Your sin upon his shoulders. Hear your mocking voice call on among the scoffers. That is what Jesus calls us to as people, as followers, but even more, it's what he calls us to as sons and daughters of God. He wrote in for you. And let's walk with him this holy week in the way of the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what do we say when we see you riding into What's unthinkable chaos? What's the same thing when we see the chaos unfolding in the world all around us and when we feel the sting of death? Apart from you, we have no hope. But you wrote in for us when we hated you, when we were hopeless, when we abandoned you. And so, Lord, wherever we're at today, whether we're cheering you on or whether we're trying to run away, I pray that we'd come alongside you and find life in the way that looks like death the way that leads through Jerusalem, but certainly leads to glory. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.